0: Welcome into the Esports Network podcast. We talk about anything and everything esports related. I am your host, of course, Kevin Correa, where we delve into the nitty gritty, talking to players, talking to executives, talking to, you know, all manner of folks who work within the esports industry. Uh, Maybe we'll get some voice actors, some artists on here soon. But for now, I kind of wanted to give a little bit behind the scenes view of what's going on back here at the Esports Network, uh, if you will, uh, analyst desk, right? uh for now we're, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place we've got a few embargoes going on and a few interviews that are supposed to come out soon so that gives us a little bit of freedom to do a bit of a solo episode like this one and uh for obvious reasons uh we've also had coverage going for worlds for league of legends and and a bunch of other things we've, we've, we've had guests on talking about uh various games uh and their events going on currently but for now we kind of had the awesome opportunity to do a solo episode like this, from where I get to talk to you, the audience, and kind of do a, a, a solo talking head piece that I I've been working on for a while. That I've had the the opportunity to kind of tease a little bit throughout the the the, the last few weeks, and hopefully uh, the guests that we have coming forward after this episode will really be ones that you know will help lay the foundation for future kind of uh, episodes as well. So for now, my this episode is supposed to be uh, a goal. It's supposed to answer the question of how is eSports currently, uh, you know, being grown and expanded on a bit this is kind of laying the foundation uh for the guests that will come in the future because we have like i said we have uh, some great guests from gaming center representatives uh media rights lawyers local enthusiasts it's it's a whole bevy of guests from you know the run the gambit in terms of uh, perspectives and interests when it comes to esports and it's interesting when we get to different people like that, they have different kind of motivations regarding why they want to talk about esports, why they got involved with esports, and it's it's a whole kind of it's really a human element, if you will, about the scene itself. And the industry is growing at, you know, a breakneck pace as always. Um and, and this post- post-pandemic period that we're seeing right now will really kind of help determine the direction of esports moving forward, right? The pandemic kind of enabled a lot of things to change, a lot of things to adapt. We saw some regression a little bit from not just uh, the esports industry, but also traditional media outlets, traditional media and how it's consumed. We saw some form of it being uh, regressed and some of it changing and it also having to adapt. A lot of us, you know, had to work from home, which is the current, you know, uh, phase for me right now. And with that, we kind of have to move into this new post-pandemic period where the changes are, are, are taking root. And now things have to kind of, you know, show the numbers for for lack of a better word. And with that, we kind of saw I know I, during the pandemic, I saw a lot of uh, the gaming centers in my area slowly start to close down or, or, or cut back and have some small layoffs here and there. It was a really a tough time for a lot of people, not just in the sports industry, obviously, but targeting these the this demographic specifically when it came to working in the industry, because a lot of it had to move off you know online at home which is difficult for a lot of people who don't have the means to do that and so with this episode I'm hoping to kind of bring to light not just the ways that eSports is is you know returning re-rising if you will it, you know kind of saw a dip but now we're re-rising to the occasion of eSports but also how it can continue to expand and what avenues you can possibly look for there and of course of course these topics will be discussed further in in-depth as well as uh, many other little facets here and that I can't get to in, you know, a 20, 30 minute episode or so. Uh, but these topics will be further emphasized on with future guests we have coming up, the ones that I teased uh, a few minutes ago. So let's delve into the re-rise of esports in this post-pandemic period, right? Like I said, uh, how do you grow esports In this new kind of era, if this is a new era, we're we're all walking into almost, uh, you know, a year and a half, almost two years now since the pandemic shut everything down, and things have slowly kind of come back up, and now we're seeing a a kind of more interest in esports now than there was before the pandemic. So how do we expand on that growth? Well, I have here a list of a few topics, a list of a few uh, bullet points, if you will. And from there, we'll delve into the details of each one of them. But for now, the first biggest bullet point, I think, is lowering the barrier of entry for eSports. And what I mean by lowering the barrier of entry, right? Right now, um, it is kind of expensive to to get into gaming in general, right? Right. You need a console up front. If you, want to, if you want to play online, if you want to compete, if you want to do any kind of uh, community-driven aspect of things, you have to have a decent enough setup to get that going, now that can be from a console. Right now, a PS5, Xbox Series S can run you anywhere from you know three, four hundred dollars, depending on what you need. From games, co- controllers, uh, the console itself, the internet access you need for it, the uh, you know the memberships needed for it, you know Xbox Live, uh, PlayStation Plus, I believe it's called. And from there, it just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a few hundred dollars before you can even start to enjoy the game itself, and, and before that, even you know, start to think about competing. So. For PC players and, and for, for people hoping to get into the PC uh, sphere of things, it's, it's a little bit more expensive. You know, a, a laptop, a you know, a decent enough laptop will run you easily four hundred dollars. And like, like I said, that's not including the Internet access. That's not including the price of certain games, the, you know, whatever you need to get yourself up off the ground to play those games. It's a pretty high barrier of entry for esports compared to traditional sports. Uh, for example, from what I remember a few years ago, signing up for Little League costs $50 to $60, uh, the bat, the glove, relatively cheap items, a few balls here and there, super cheap cleats, plastic cleats. You're easily talking about a few, you know, $200 max in terms of equipment setup, upfront costs right there and before, you, you know, on the field, that's relatively cheap. The barrier of entry for esports and just in general gaming itself can be at times. I'm not going to say it is definitively expensive right now, it can be somewhat hindersome for new people to get in, new people interested to get in. That primarily, when I say new people, I'm talking about probably folks, kids who you know don't really have a concrete income, their parents aren't really interested in you know that kind of hobby for them. That's all fair. Lower the barrier of entry a little bit, right? And to kind of, let's start with the game titles, really. Right now, you got a few pretty solid free-to-play games from League of Legends, Rocket League, Dota 2, Counter-Strike Global Offensive, all these free eSports titles that, uh, honestly, they don't take up too much uh, in terms of specs. They're relatively easy to play on whatever you got. So if you're playing on a laptop, uh, you know, it can be a little almost... Ultrabook, Chromebook kind of thing. Doesn't have to be that exactly, but you know, it's sometimes it it, it's, it is what we have and that's what we have to play with. But merely, you know, it can play on five year old systems, six year old systems, and and still be pretty decent enough in a, of an experience to where you can get involved on the competitive circuit. And Most importantly, you have to have continued development and support for these titles. If you end up buying, you know, uh, not buying, but you know, getting involved with Warzone, and you buy a a Call of Duty game, the the, you know, the, the the disc itself, you want the support behind it to be continued for at least a good solid two or three years right get your get some some mileage out of the game call of duty is probably a bad example because they they release a new iteration of it every year you know we just uh, wrapped a cold war this past season with the call of duty league and now we're moving into call of duty vanguard which is a whole nother game for pros to learn and relearn it's it's a lot of having to figure out which developers will take what direction with with Call of Duty? But with with games like League of Legends, Dota two, they release you know uh, patch notes. They do hot fixes. They're generally on top of things when it comes to developing the game, making sure that it's competitively balanced as much as possible, as well as also keeping it entertaining enough. Right? You want some different skins. You want some different, uh, you know, not, not not gimmicks exactly, but different features to be included. For example, you know, I know there's talk of the the Kempunk tra- uh, Dragon coming into League of Legends for next season. That's that'll change things up a little bit. You know, make it more exciting to play. Make it different enough to where players will. Be You know, stay intrigued and stay with the game. And so there's lots of different things. Rocket League does it as well with their little events. Overwatch with their also, I know they have Halloween, uh, you know, the Olympic events they've had in the past. That kind of stuff is really what keeps a game going uh, on its legs. And also, you know, doesn't hurt that it's free. A free-to-play uh, title, I'm not talking, uh, you know, pay-to-win. That's that's a completely different kind of concept. But a free-to-play title where the upfront cost is zero. You, The only thing you're really paying for is cosmetics or a way to speed up getting agents, getting heroes, getting champions, that kind of thing. It, it's really like nothing doing, right? I know for like games like Valorant, uh, the skins, the gunplay, it's all a bit different sometimes when it comes to, you know, that kind of thing. But, I mean, for the most part, the upfront cost is zero. That's the most important thing to lowering the barrier of entry for for the cost of esports. You know, nowadays, um, if you're playing a traditional game on the PS5, Xbox series uh, uh, consoles, you're paying close to 50, 60, upwards of $70 for a game to play. And sometimes it has a decent enough multiplayer online facet. It depends, though, because sometimes the development and support for those games go out within two years, and you're already done with it. You've spent $70 for a game you played close to, what, maybe 200 hours at most? For a lot of people who have gotten into League of Legends and Valorant already, you see upwards of a 1,000 hours, and it's pretty insane what that $0 cost will do for a game. Also, mean, you know, Fortnite and stuff like that, you know, that Fortnite will probably be the game that that is the most gimmick like featured uh, gameplay out there, which is, you know, awesome to hear. But, uh, you know, it is Fortnite. People have their thoughts on it. That's fine. Uh, it is an eSport, however, so we, we have to sometimes talk about it. But another big, big kind of point into lowering that barrier of entry is is increasing access to technology right you have a, a, a bevy of opportunities to kind of explore technology within schools within university campuses libraries are also uh, public areas where th- you know gaming can really take hold back in the old days you didn't really have that option you pretty much had to depend on you know in the 80s it was the arcades uh, in the 90s and, and early 2000s it was you know going to a friend's house somewhere that you knew you had to kind of have the initial uh, a step to another person who knew a person, or just kind of a friend of a friend who got can get you access to a console. In the '80s, it was the arcades was kind of the the, the communal area for for gaming, for competitive gaming, for for those kinds of communities. Now. You're starting. To, you're starting to see, especially in 2020, we're starting to see a lot more of these gaming centers pop up. A lot of the the gaming centers, you know, in my area, we have Esports Stadium, Arlington. We have the, uh, the the kind of gaming cafes here, and they're opening up. You have areas up in Frisco. You have areas in Plano. Uh, just recently, we had in Grapevine, uh, up in uh, the northern part of, of the DFW Metroplex, we had the Belong Gaming Arena open up their second location in the state dates here, which is I'll, I'll I'll have a whole episode on that later on. We'll get some representatives out there and to, to talk about um, their brand new opening. It just opened up like not even two weeks ago, which is awesome. But those centers like that, they they cost maybe what four or five, six dollars an hour to play on a very high end PC. I mean today I saw 3060 for the an Arctic 3060 for the first time in person. Insane to me. I haven't seen one in in, in since the pandemic started. Right? So it's it's insane to me that you can pay 4 5 6 dollars a fraction of the cost of what it you know it takes to build a pc of that magnitude but it's brought down to a very scalable, very easy to kind of uh, you know pay for that hourly rate, and sometimes even the membership rates are are well worth it because you know if you just map it on your head, right? A, a decent PC nowadays will cost you easily eleven hundred dollars to get the monitor, the peripherals, to get the chair, the, you know the desk, the, the the exact specs you want, easily upwards of eleven hundred dollars. Now you you can make some arguments here and there, you know, okay, Kevin, you can, you know, you can take out the graphics card, just play on an APU. Uh, it's Look, for what these gaming centers are offering, 1100 is like the bare bones minimum, for, is what I'm saying. It's, it would take you how many hours of continual playtime to add up to the cost of that PC? It would take you probably a good solid few months to rack up enough, you know, 5 $6 hours to actually you know come up to that cost and and say like oh i should have spent that money on a pc and you know the membership rates are easily you know 30 i seen 30 40 60 dollars at a time a month which again isn't awful 60 dollars a month puts you well in the neighborhood of about i think 600 uh probably 700 dollars or so to kind of get yourself going which is not again it's still a few hundred dollars below the PC you're playing on. And, you know, not to mention, they also have, you know, the consoles as well, which is pretty fun to kind of get your hands on one to see if you want one or not. It's it's, it's always a good thing to have more of these gaming centers, more of these gaming cafes pop up. And uh, for the most part, you're seeing them kind of being put into into strip malls. You're seeing them put into areas where there's high foot traffic near schools, near, uh, you know, popular destinations. And that's helping reach out to, you know, not just not just lower income communities, but also to a crowd, to an audience that hasn't seen one in person before, which also kind of helps uh, bring that barrier of entry down for a lot of people who's like, oh, well, I can just play here. Once these are successful, you kind of see more than popping up here and there. And it's it's very evident why they keep popping up. Right the belong gaming arenas that i've I've, i went to uh a few days ago brilliant right it was awesome i I loved it it was great i saw pictures of the Pearland location they had i've seen a few uh schools pop up with their own gaming centers with their own gaming arenas and kind of take advantage of it that's 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 a good way of lowering that barrier of entry to esports now my second point that I want to get into here is, is kind of a little bit more broad, a little bit more, you know, uh, loosey goosey, if you will, right? And that is that esports must have a way to reach into and grab the traditional demographics and the traditional broadcast medium's attention. When I say traditional demographics, you know, the big ones are like the 18 to 50 males, the, uh, you know, the, 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 that kind of below 18 uh demographic the esports and gaming in general is one of the very few demographics besides i think maybe sports and a few movies here and there that kind of tackle a, a bunch of generations generations at once like i said gaming as a communal thing has been around for you know 70s 80s really so we're talking close to 50 years of history for gaming as we know it and for a lot of those older folks it's kind of a connection thing. You you connect with the younger generation. You're able to kind of understand what they, what they do. And that's a huge thing. So I think the pandemic was, uh, let me, let me be very clear. The pandemic was an awful thing, you know, but we had to look for some kind of a little bit of a, a, a lining to it, a silver lining to it. ESPN, ABC, they were able to dip their toes a little bit more into What makes esports great? So they they broadcasted some old Rocket League and League of Legends and Overwatch League games and titles, and that was fun. We saw some tournaments, you know, uh, of course, recorded, but it enabled that exposure to be thrown out there, you know. Yeah, I believe it was uh, before the pandemic. ESPN 2 was broadcasting concurrently on Twitch and YouTube the Overwatch League matches. I know the, the, the Dallas Steel had their homestand here in 2019 or so, and ESPN was broadcasting it. And I got a chance to, to see the, 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 the ESPN crews out there as well in Allen, Texas, when that happened. And it's something that we hadn't seen before. And it just kind of it was a spark. And that's all it needs to be. Of course, we we all know ESPN Esports afterwards kind of shuttered their their doors on 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 uh, thanks not thanks to the pandemic, but just because ESPN is just kind of really uh, not doing too well when it comes to retaining quality and talented uh, employees. It's kind of not really allowed themselves to explore different avenues too much. You're kind of going back to the well and, and doing the same things over and over again. why so, you know, Stephen A. Smith is, is, is the main player at ESPN right now because he attracts a big viewership number and for esports in general to be on that kind of platform, at least even for that little bit was just enough to get the wheels turning and get people thinking about and grease the gears and just kind of think like, oh, well, this Eastwards is this, comp- this competitive thing. It's an actual thing. And it, it's something that a lot of people hadn't like seen before until you put it in front of their faces. You know, I, I say kind of that exposure will lead to um, exposure will, will lend itself to curio- cur- curiosity, which will, le- will eventually lead to interest. And that'll lead to a, a diehard viewer at some point. If you continue to make it normal, continue to put it out there in the ether people will be receptive to it and that's what i think is important for esports it doesn't have to be the main point right it doesn't you don't have to focus all of your efforts on getting esports on tv but it's it certainly i think it's a certain a uh, certain side quest if you will that people that esports organizations should be mindful of you know oh, well we should probably you know make a you know look at NBC and see if we can do a partnership deal with them and focus on what we can do and bring to their their platform to their channel. And it it starts off with conversations like that. And from there, you you take off. And so once you get into those traditional broadcast uh, networks heads, then you can start changing things up a bit. Right and from there i think Esports really has a great advantage it will bring something completely different to a television set that we had, we hadn't seen before for example you can have improved viewership experiences across the board. How often do you get to go uh, watch? A, you know, for example, the World Series right now. How often do you get to go watch the World Series? And there's a chat room right there. There's viewing rewards. So hey, if you if you watch the game for you know a few innings, you'll get like an extra something here or other, a coupon for something to 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 buy off the MLB store, or you know you get to make live predictions. You get to you know you get to gamify it a little bit. That's something that esports has has really taken off with in the past few months and past you know past year really, when it came to viewing awards, live predictions, kind of embracing you know the, you're watching the game. Why not make the watch itself a game? You know, you gamify it all. Why not? The pros are playing the game. You're playing the game while watching them. It's an interesting dichotomy that we will continue to explore in the coming months and and years. And it's something that. People haven't really been mindful of. They kind of seen it pop up here and there, but it, it makes it so unique that it'll, it keeps people coming back at times. You know, but like I said, that kind of gamifying also lends itself to betting and esports betting when and, and esports gambling, if you will. So that's an even bigger audience right there for for gambling and, and betting. And of course, the biggest thing is allowing easy accessibility to teams, players, and personalities for viewers and fans, right? Uh, you see a lot of the younger, younger traditional athletes doing this. They will do a Twitch stream here and there, and they'll, 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 they'll have a pretty good sized audience and it'll just, you know, make historic numbers on Twitch just off a, you know, maybe not a great player, but a solid player from a team, popular team makes it happen. And so, For esports to kind of get more growth, it's these personalities like the Courages, the Dr. Disrespects, the Tim the Tatmans, the the, the Valkyries, Pokemanes, those big name personalities who will enable traditional mediums to have a window into that very you know that that young demographic that i think we'll call what 14 to 40 demographic of people who are very internet savvy who love watching these personalities once you have the networks in you know tapping into these personalities you'll see that that accessibility be used to you know the, the fullest degree if you will and that'll just you know that goes back to points from the schools, the gaming centers, all that stuff, looping that back in. You know, once you have those personalities, then you have you know, watching in the gaming so you can watch on ESPN the latest uh, Overwatch Rocket League match, right? I mean, that's probably not going to happen, but it's fun to think about. It's a lot of the stuff I'm talking about is, is like I said big picture, vague kind of things that we'll get into with further guests down the line. But there 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 does have to be some kind of tapping into the mainstream networks to get that exposure. Now, one last thing I want to hit on here concerning the traditional way of things being done. Uh esports right now, it's still in its infancy, right? We're we're seeing it in its kind of I would call it a third wave of growth where bigger corporations bigger companies are getting involved they are kind of consolidating a few things here and there leagues are being franchised you know teams are starting to be geolocated here and there still juries out on what exactly will work best for esports right but a lot of esports still remains. Uh, number one, unfranchised, and number two, uh, there's no kind of revenue sharing system between any of these teams. Right, right now, if you do bad in a, in an esports scene, most organizations will like, oh, we're just gonna sell off the team, and we're just not gonna be in that scene anymore. We're not we're not getting the gains we'd hope to see on it. A big thing that a lot of esports teams, not the organizations themselves, but the teams should focus on doing is encouraging a revenue sharing system. I mean, hopefully the league, but even more hopeful is like the sports industry as a whole, some kind of revenue sharing system where these players, these competitions um, can ensure some kind of small uh, salary, you know, just make sure there's a standard, a standard for the leagues coming forth that's all that's all pretty much anybody wants you know mlb does it nba does it nfl does it there's a revenue sharing system that is enabled that encourages these franchise teams to really focus in on uh and and actually kind of be rewarded for playing in the in the league which is should be happening anyways right but for right for now if you remain unfranchised uh, you kind of live and die by your competitions, right? You kind of if you don't want a tournament or you don't win a few tournaments here uh, in a row and, and the organization doesn't really want to back you anymore because it's, it's costing them money to keep you going. It's an issue, right? But within some kind of revenue sharing system specifically for teams, it'll make it work even better. Um, one thing I would note here. I want to talk about the overarching organizations very quickly is that we need to kind of. Do away with the traditional notions of an ex, you know a, an expected return on your investment or a guaranteed minimum return on your investment. Things are kind of moving at a breakneck pace right now, and what isn't working right now doesn't mean it won't work a few months down the road. And so, the investment kind of uh, angle of a lot of esports organizations is focused on returns. That needs to kind of uh, change at least a little bit, right? Understand that you just want to make as much money as possible on your, on your investment. Understandable, completely. However, if this industry doesn't grow, you know, we say it on this, on this podcast over and over, a rising sh- a tide lifts all ships, which it should. If you don't continually try to reinvest that money and kind of give back to the organizations that enabled your investment in the first place it's kind of difficult to see the industry growing at a faster pace. And like I said, we'll get into this more with some guests further down the line, but for now it's kind of like, like live or die on, these either you know angel investors sometimes saving an esports organization at the last second, or investors kind of you know coming together and say, like, hey, we can we can really you know help this organization out and we can ensure some returns here and there. But for the most part, we need to help them out because you know it's, it's either the right thing to do or it'll it'll help the industry as a whole. Besides that, there's there's a lot of avenues there for investors and any kind of financial uh, backing to really get going. So like I said, we'll get into that a little bit later with other guests. But it, it's something to, it's something to think about. A lot of these points aren't really just, like, advice for esports, like, oh, esports should should do this and that and all that. It's more just, like, general guidelines that that people should be looking at moving forward. Like, I've I've always mentioned before, 2020, the the decade of 2020, will literally be the foundation for a fourth humongous wave of esports moving forward into the 2030s and beyond. And it starts with, of course, the grassroots scene and the financial backing of those scenes. We'll see what decisions, uh, you know, the the grassroots community will take or what decisions the financial backers will take. It's a lot of questions up in the air, but we'll see kind of that be answered in the the coming future. Lastly, my last big point. Ensure that esports is in the zeitgeist, is in the mainstream, it's part of the culture, it's the youth culture of today, it should stay that way for the next 10-15 years, right? You see a skit on SNL, you see several skits on SNL covering esports, you know, making fun of it, blah blah blah, that's fine, right? But like I said before, exposure leads to curiosity, leads to interest, it will lead to fans. That is the sticking point that most people should be focusing on. Make it normal. SNL making fun of it is a will be a normal thing. Ensure it stays in that mainstream kind of medium. Um, right now, if you're not in the medium, you're kind of left out to dry a little bit, Um I think, an interesting juxtaposition, if you will. Look at a game like chess. Uh, ch- chess for years has kind of been seen as an old person's game, a privileged game. Um, for a lot of people, you know, if you don't have somebody to play with or whatever, it's kind of hard to get into it. But now with the, the the kind of the surge of online and resurgence of chess coming along with it, we see a lot of personalities starting to, you know, make it a thing again, a mainstream thing again. You know, you see people like the Botez sisters kind of really enabling that kind of market to grow again, which is insane to me. That, that 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 can happen once you get into the mainstream and stay there. Chess was out of the mainstream, now it's back in. You know, Queen's Gambit, all that stuff, it's, it's kind of resurged a little bit and made it a more popular game than it was 10, 15 years ago. Now, a big thing that people should also, that organizations should also be mindful of is that they need to continue partnering with these major celebrities and brands, bring them on as partners, bring them on through investment and collaboration. Those are very important kind of details that can kind of get lost when you're starting up an esports organization or or you're trying to grow your current esports organization even more. So here's, like, I'm going to start listing off names here. I'm going to be honest, I have a list of names that uh, are popular, athletes, celebrities, musicians, whatever, that are involved with eSports you got David Beckham Odell Beckham Jr you have Mark Cuban Steph Curry Kevin Durant Rick Fox Tony Hawk Zlatan Ibrahimović uh, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Michael B. Jordan, Jerry Jones, Robert Kraft, Stan Kroenke, uh, Lando Norris, Shaquille O'Neal, A-Rod, J-Lo, Ronaldo, Richard Sherman, Juju Smith-Schuster, Mike Tyson, Drake, Will Smith, Ashton Kutcher, Posty, uh, Pitbull, The Weeknd, Wiz Khalifa. The list is literally infinite in terms of celebrities who have... Either currently or in the past, uh, somehow interacted with an esports organization, and that's 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 awesome. You see, also Lil Nas X signing to 100 Thieves. You see celebrities like uh, uh, Ezekiel Elliott, or not celebrities, athletes like Ezekiel Elliott joining FaZe or something like that. Keep that happening, right? Keep those those deals happening because they have their own following within their own sphere it will at very at the very least a few percentage points of their followers will also go with them to this esports venture that they're on and it's insane to me you know how much uh, a person like uh, lebron james's son Bronny, gets for you know joining faze or whatever i think it was i think it was faze or hundred thieves i don't know they both have the same kind of setup but you know what i mean they they pretty much were on the cover of a magazine and they 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 brought attention to things awesome Keep that going. You saw Faze Clan on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Keep that going. You see Tim the Tatman streaming at AT&T Stadium, streaming Warzone games at AT&T Stadium on that humongous screen at Jerry World. Keep that going. Things like that to keep you in the mainstream, to keep you in the public eye, it will bring attention. Obviously, it won't bring you the always the best kind of attention, but once you make it normal enough, It will be seen as normal. It will be seen as an industry to be taken seriously, not just by the people involved in it, but people on the outside of it looking to get involved in it. So for now, there's lots, lots, lots of work to be done uh, at the grassroots level. And at the corporate level, to make sure eSports continues to grow in the decades to come. So uh, three points there, right? Pretty much uh, lower the barrier of entry for eSports. Do that by you know free- to- play titles, uh, gaming centers, uh, opening them up wherever, schools, universities, campuses, strip malls, wherever. reach into uh, the traditional mediums, traditional demographics, make it normal, and also stay in the mainstream. If all those things, those three things continue, you, you know, kind of continue to, to grow, continue to happen, we'll see esports be a multi billion dollar industry by, you know, 2035. I guarantee. That's just a, you know, bold face prediction right there. I'm not even going to back that up with facts. That's how I feel. 2035, we'll see the esports industry become a multi billion dollar industry. Now, that's, you know,. <laughs> 14 years from the outset, right? Prove me wrong then. I'll save this, save the date, save the podcast episode. Let me know what you guys think. But what else do you think esports needs to do to continue to grow? Let me know, right? Shoot me a note on Twitter at Korea24 at esports network. Let me know your thoughts on what needs to happen for esports to continue becoming. The the the, the multi billion dollar industry I predicted it will become. Of course, I I'm not the only one predicting that. There's tons of uh, consulting firms, tons of, of financial think tanks who are also researching this and making sh- making note of the numbers that are happening, the trends, and they'll probably see a little bit of it too. So I'm not the only one to say it. I'm probably not the first one to say it, but mark my words: multi billion by 2035 will be the goal for esports uh, as an industry. So. Uh, From all of us here at the Esports Network, um, thank you guys for listening. Again, any thoughts at Create24 at Esports Network, let me know there, and I'm more than happy to have a conversation to indulge the, the audience, to indulge people who listen and people who hate my points. Let me know about it. I'm always down to engage and debate and discuss. That's 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 the point of this podcast, to kind of extend a dialogue between people who work in the industry and people who are fans of the industry, between people who um, have interesting stories to tell, and from people who pretty much make a living off esports. That's really what it's all about, to kind of enable this to be a poster of, of, of certain aspects of the esports industry. So it's a lot. I know. It's a lot to get through. but. I'm here to help you guide you through it. So listen in for the next few episodes. We'll have some very interesting guests on that. We'll kind of delve into the topics I discussed here. Not a bad thing to get involved there. So let us know what you guys want to hear, and I'll be sure to take that into account moving forward. And as always, we appreciate you listening. So I'm your host, Kevin Correa, right here on the Esports Network Podcast.